Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? 2 Peter 1, as we work our way through Peter's second epistle. Let me just begin by saying, first of all, good evening and happy Halloween. Not really. There's nothing happy about one of the high holy days of the year for witches, occultists, and Satanists. These groups are nature worshipers who worship, among other things, the seasonal turning points marked by the equinoxes and the solstices. The dates of those things vary from year to year, as well as the midpoints. They worship also the midpoints between uh, these things, which... Uh, can be recognized as the climaxes of each season. One scientist said, the start of each season is marked by either a solstice for winter and summer, or an equinox for spring and autumn. A solstice is when the sun reaches the most southerly or northerly point in the sky, while an equinox is when the sun passes over the Earth's equator. Since these are nature worshipers, obviously they worship uh, in sync with the seasons, the solstices, the uh, equinoxes. One of the biggest ones, if not the biggest one, that they uh, they have worshipped for these nature worshipers uh, is uh, April 30th, also called Walpurgis Night, which is in the spring, the spring climax period. In fact, it's so important, it, it probably is the highest of the holy days that these people, the, the Satanists, occultists, uh, which is uh, probably the highest holy day of the year for them, Walpurgis Night, so much so that the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, founded his church on Walpurgis Night. And um, Halloween, October 31st, is the fall climax, known as uh, Samhain uh, or Samhain. Sometimes it's pronounced, it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, Samhain, Samhain, yeah, Samhain, I think is mostly how it's pronounced. It's actually the Irish Gaelic word for summer's end, summer's end. Uh, Samhain is the uh, Celtic festival where ancient pagans believed that the division between the worlds of the living and the dead would be at their thinnest separating point of the year, allowing the spirits of the dead to invade the world of the living more easily. Occultists believe that uh, communicating with dead ancestors and departed loved ones is easier at this time than at any other time in the year. Again, the division between the world of the living and the dead is the thinnest, they believe, right now. Tonight is a fact. So uh, there's a lot of communication with the dead going on. Isn't that lovely? Think about that. One author who is uh, an expert in this whole thing had this to say about this pagan holy day. He said, and I quote, The origins of Halloween are Celtic in tradition and have to do with observing the end of summer sacrifices to gods in Druidic. The Druids were the priestesses of these pagan religions, but the, observing the end of the summer sacrifices to the gods the Druids worshipped in their traditions in what is now Britain and France. It was the beginning of the Celtic year. And they believed that Samhain, the Lord of Death, sent evil spirits abroad to attack humans who could escape only by assuming disguises and looking like evil spirits themselves. 
The waning of the sun and the approach of dark winter made the evil spirits rejoice and play nasty tricks. And that's why people in these ancient cultures would leave treats out in their doorsteps so that the spirits wouldn't play tricks on them, hassle them, right? All over America, those who are deep into the dark arts will contact the dead, cast spells, and conduct blood sacrifices. There is a reason why animal shelters across the country ban the adoption of black cats this time of the year, end quote. That's true. Because they know that they will be sacrificed right, by these folks. Unfortunately and horrifically, it's also the time of year when little children, infants, are abused in the name of Satan. Sometimes even sacrificed to Satan. Satanists will vehemently deny this, but they're liars. They're liars. We've heard from people that have come out of Satanism who have said that they do, in fact, at times, sacrifice infants to Satan. The idea being that if you want to get at the God of heaven, he's too strong to attack directly. So you attack the most innocent, the most helpless, made in his image. That will somehow get at him. We've even heard stories of young women who have been recruited as Satanists to become breeders who then give birth to children who are sacrificed or abused. This time of year, the spiritual warfare against Christians ramps up exponentially. Have you not felt it? I feel it as soon as we enter into October. It manifests itself with anxiety, fear, anger, depression, and other emotions that plague, debilitate, and oppress us as Christians, which the devil uses to steal our joy, of course, and sow doubts in our minds as to whether or not we're really saved, whether or not we're really going to heaven, kind of thing. Now, of course, guys, this um, doesn't just happen this time of year. The attacks of the uh, devil against Christians uh, in the area of doubts goes on all year long, but this year it's really heightened. As we have stated numerous times in our studies in First and Second Peter, spiritual warfare is waged primarily in the mind. Primarily in the mind. Satan tries to sow into our minds temptations, which take the form of what Paul called in Galatians 5.16, the lusts of the flesh. And these lusts are designed to take our minds off the Lord and the work of the kingdom by getting us to live carnal lives, thus neutralizing our effectiveness for Jesus. But one of the greatest ways the devil attacks our minds is in the area of doubt. In the area of doubt. As I just said, doubts as to whether or not you're really saved, pointing to our failures as proof, quote-unquote, that we don't really know the Lord, which leads then to discouragement and even to depression. I've talked to several people who are really were really struggling this uh, last couple weeks. Uh, somebody very close to me. And uh, he was just a basket case, uh, full of uh, anger at himself uh, because his walk was not where he felt it should be, even though he wakes up every morning and prays and reads the Bible. Um, he was focusing on all of his shortcomings, failures, and um, was really wringing his hands, losing sleep, getting sick physically over the fact that he couldn't be saved and have such a carnal walk. These are Satan's lies. They happen all year round. 
but this time of year especially gets ramped up. And when we listen to his lies, well, he can then condemn us, destroy our walk, and neutralize our effectiveness for God. Of course, this can only happen really when a Christian is living in the flesh and not walking in the Spirit. This is exactly what Peter eventually brings out in chapter 1. You remember he started out this epistle by encouraging us. Actually, the Greek was a command, commanding us to stay close to the Lord so that his virtuous character, Jesus' virtuous character, will grow in us and bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of godliness and Christ-likeness. Not only will this glorify God, which is what we want, right? But it will keep the enemy from being able to condemn us because of carnal living. The best defense against the devil's condemnation is just staying close to the Lord, walking in the Spirit. You'll still get attacked, but he can't use your, yourself against you. Let's read it again, okay? Back up to verse 2. Peter said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you, an entrance into heaven, will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that Peter brackets this section on godly living with the admonition in verse 5, giving all diligence, and again in verse 10, be even more diligent. The Greek word is a word that means to make every effort, to make every effort. In stressing the importance of being diligent to live godly lives as Christians, Peter is basically telling us that it's our responsibility to grow in our walk with the Lord. You can't live your Christian life on autopilot. A lot of people try. And they think they're doing just fine, but they're not. They're not. That's why the Bible likens it to a walk, which implies motion. Imagine you are walking right behind the Lord, which is where you should be, in his footsteps, leaning on him as you walk. You stop walking, he keeps going. What happens to you? you fall down. And that's not a good place for a Christian to be in. Listen to me once again. Peter is just stressing the importance that we exercise diligence, make every effort to grow in our walk with the Lord, not to be static, not to be lazy, not to try to live as if everything is going to be automatic, okay, without any effort on our part. Uh, we'll just grow through osmosis, I think, somehow. I don't know. But when you really put the effort in, 
when you really make every effort to be diligent in growing in your walk, not only will it glorify God and allow him to bless your life, but it will hinder the devil's ability to condemn you. The issue that Peter is raising in verse 10, listen to me now, very important. The issue that Peter is raising in verse 10 is the assurance of the believer's salvation. The assurance of the believer's salvation. The dictionary defines assurance as, and I quote, full confidence, freedom from doubt, certainty. Look, Satan can't rob you of your salvation. I'm convinced of that. Others might disagree. If you're really saved, as far as I'm concerned, as far as what I read in the Bible, you're saved forever. So once you are saved, Satan can't rob you of your salvation. But if he can rob you of the assurance of your salvation, that's almost as good to him. First of all, let me just say this. When Peter admonished in verse 10, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, well, he was encouraging all professing Christians to make sure they had actually and definitely been called and elected by God. In other words, he was encouraging them, admonishing them to make sure they were really saved. To make sure they were really saved. Paul said if we judge ourselves, we won't have to be judged by him someday. Don't take anything for granted. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But make sure that you've been called and elected by God. Make sure you're saved. The language sounds very similar to what Paul said in Romans 8. Turn there. In fact, maybe Peter had read Paul's letter to the Romans and was kind of parroting what Paul said with these words. Familiar territory, Romans 8, starting with verse 28, where Paul said, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, that's the same Greek word for elected, for whom he elected, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, saved. Those he justified, he will glorify. You, If you're saved... Working back, you know, you were predestined, you know, elected, called. Now you're saved. And Paul says, if you have been justified, you're saved, you will be glorified. He doesn't say, well, let's see how it goes. Okay? You're saved, but, you know, there's no guarantees here. You got to live a holy life. You got to make sure you keep your nose clean spiritually, you know, slough off and, you know, that kind of thing. No, he doesn't say that. If you have been justified, you will be glorified. Peter is now kind of picking up on that language. And he says, make your call and election sure. In other words, make sure that you're really saved. Now, some commentators say that Peter's admonition in verse 10 proves he's addressing unbelievers and not true Christians. That's possible, even as we read of some professing Christians in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God. Churchgoers, some of them, profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. In other words, their life is not matching up to what they say. Uh, they're saying the right words, but they're not living the right life. In other words, there's no change. There's no, you know, they're, they're, they're living the same old life. I mean, they may go to church once in a while and consider themselves Christians. But again, Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. 
okay? But some commentators believe, you know, Peter's addressing unbelievers. It, it could be. I mean, we read in numerous places. In fact, Peter hits this hard, very hard in chapter 2. I'll save most of my comments for then about uh, those who masquerade as Christians but are not really saved. But, but they're out there. Remember what Jesus said in Luke uh, 6, verse 46, he said to a group of his followers, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? And then he went on to teach using a parable, saying, look, there are many who call me Lord, come to church, hear the word taught, but don't ever do anything about it. They don't really intend to live it. So they are like those who built their house on the sand. Then you have those who come to church, hear the word, and they go out and try to obey everything they've heard. They are like ones who have built their house on the rock. And when the storm comes, and that to me that's talking about tribulation, well, the person whose faith was built on the sand, uh, they're playing games, they were phonies. Maybe they thought they were genuine, but they weren't. Their faith is going to crumble. It's not, it's not real. It's not built on God's word. But those people who have built their life, their faith on God's word, evidenced by obedience to what he has said, well, uh, their faith is going to stand. Their faith is going to stand. I, I just believe right here Peter isn't addressing unbelievers at this point. I, I believe he's addressing carnal Christians. I say that because in verse 9 he says they were cleansed from their sins. They forgot. I don't know how you forget that. They, they forgot they were Christians. Okay, Not really. Not really. But, but that Peter's kind of using that language. They forgot that they were cleansed from their sins. And, and they're not going to live like they used to live. That's a real problem. You can't be cleansed from your sins, though, and be an unbeliever. So, to me, he's addressing carnal Christians. One pastor said, and I quote, he said, this kind of spiritual forgetfulness, forgetting you're saved, I guess, leads to the repeating of old sins. And it robs such Christians of their assurance. Assurance of salvation is directly related to present spiritual service and obedience, not merely to a past salvation event made dim in the disobedient believer's memory, end quote. Folks, look, there are a lot of people who have, we'll say, come forward at a Billy Graham crusade or a Luis Palau crusade or a Greg Laurie crusade. They heard the gospel. They were moved with emotion. They came forward. Jesus talked about these. Many, you know, received the gospel with great joy and tears and emotion. But there's no doubt. It's emotional. And when the emotion of the moment passes, they're as lost as they ever were. Maybe even worse. Because now they think they're saved. Which circumvents the conviction of the Holy Spirit now that they would be saved. The problem with lukewarmness, the problem with this kind of person, is that they have just enough, just enough of the Word of God, what we call, what maybe call pseudo-righteousness, to inoculate themselves against the real thing. And now, because they walk the aisle, pray to prayer, you know, and we're told, don't ever doubt you're not saved, because that's the devil. That's the worst thing you can tell them. I don't ever tell somebody that, who comes up to pray to receive Christ. I don't ever say, now don't you ever doubt from this moment on that you're not saved, because that's the devil. No. I need to see fruit. I don't know this person's heart. I don't know what's really going on inside their heart. Neither do you. They want to pray to receive Christ. You say, well, do you understand what you're doing? You lay out the gospel clearly, and if they still want to pray to receive Christ, awesome. 
but then I wait to see if there's fruit. Because that's how you know, right? Now, guys, just as I said, Satan can't rob you of your salvation. I'm convinced of that. But he can rob you of the assurance of your salvation, and that's almost as good. And he will try to do that by sowing doubt into your mind as to whether or not you're really a Christian, which is why one of the pieces of armor a Christian is commanded to put on every day is, listen, the helmet of salvation. Turn to Ephesians 6. You know, tonight we're talking about spiritual warfare. This time of year, it really gets ramped up. I think you've probably been feeling it. I know I have, okay? Most of the time, it takes place in our minds. And the Bible has some important things to say about what we do to guard our minds against the attacks of the devil. If you read Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10, here's what Paul said. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the greatest strategies, some translated mind games. Oh, that's interesting. Of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. You do whatever you can do. I mean, ultimately the victory is God. It belongs to him. But we have a responsibility to do certain things. One of those things is to put on the armor of a Christian every single day. That's all we can do. That's what we need to do. And then trust God to do the rest. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You can go online. We went through each one of these separately. We, we studied Ephesians. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Talking about the helmet of salvation. You know, I believe Paul, as he was chained to Roman soldiers quite a bit uh, in prison, uh, you know, Paul was a thoughtful guy, and I would imagine there were times when he lay, uh, lay awake at night and uh, saw this soldier he was chained to and began to study the armor. And remember that in the Old Testament, which he was a scholar of, uh, God likened certain pieces of armor to certain parts of Christian armor. And so I think he picked up on that and began to say, oh, well, yeah, well, also, this could be this, or this could... And the Holy Spirit was leading them, of course. And the, one of the things he talks about is the helmet. Uh, no doubt, looking at that Roman soldier who wore a helmet, you know, no Roman soldier would ever go out to battle without his helmet. Some of these helmets were made of thick leather covered with metal plates. Some of them were uh, made of heavy molded or beaten metal. The purpose of the helmet was to protect the soldier from head injuries due to arrows, of course. But especially, listen, especially, though, from the deadly broadsword that was commonly used in battle back then. The broadsword was a, a large, heavy, two-edged sword, measuring between three and four feet. had a massive handle that you gripped with two hands and held like a baseball bat. 
It was not a precision weapon like the Makaira, the dagger he held. Uh, at, it was attached to his belt, okay? That was a hand-to-hand combat weapon. This sword was used by cavalrymen who would run towards the opposing army with this broadsword in their hands. And when they got close, they started just whipping this thing around, hoping to catch somebody in the head or maybe decapitate them altogether. From what I understand, archaeologists have found more than a few skeletons in that area of the world where the skull was completely cut in two. No doubt, having received a blow from one of these broadswords. To say the least, guys, when a soldier went out to battle, he always wanted to have his head protected against a blow from one of these broadswords. So, you know, the helmet was not only important, it was vital. And Paul is saying to us that as important as a physical helmet is to a soldier in battle, so is the spiritual helmet to a soldier of Christ, the helmet of salvation. Now look, don't get confused. Don't get confused by what Paul is saying here. He mentions all these pieces of armor that we need to put on. Then he mentions the helmet of salvation uh, second to last, and then, of course, the sword of the Spirit. Don't misunderstand, though. He's not saying that we put on all these other pieces of armor first and then we put on salvation. In other words, we we get saved. No, that's not true. Paul is talking to Christians in Ephesians 6, those who are already saved. Some people have, uh, are confused about, well, what is this helmet of salvation? What is he saying? Put on all this other armor and then get saved? That doesn't make sense because you can't put on Christian armor until you're a Christian. Okay, so what is this helmet of salvation? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he called it the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of the hope of salvation. Guys, whenever the New Testament writers talk about our hope as Christians, listen to me, they are always referring to what's coming. Our hope of eternal life, our hope of heaven someday, our hope of the inheritance that God has promised us. Understand something in the New Testament, whenever you read the word hope, and it's always, I think, pretty much always attached to salvation or eternal life or heaven someday, Understand that when the New Testament uses the word hope, one of the writers, it's never a I hope so hope. It's a sure thing, I know so hope. I know so hope. Because it's predicated upon a promise of God. And so Paul isn't, listen, Paul isn't saying take and put on salvation every day. No. He is saying take and put on the knowledge of the hope of your salvation every day. In other words, make sure that you never go out to battle as a Christian without knowing, without knowing your salvation is sure, secure, and eternal. This is what we call assurance. Assurance. The assurance of salvation. And that's why Paul likened it to a helmet. It was because he knew his enemy. He knew his enemy. He said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Again, that Greek word could be translated mind games. Again, spiritual warfare primarily is fought for control the way you think. Now, before you got saved, the devil controlled you and I. You know, before we got saved, he controlled our thinking by the things we watched and listened to. This whole world has been orchestrated by the devil. 
to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And of course, in the stuff we watched on TV, out of the sitcoms we laughed at, that were preaching to us an immoral message, making sin look fun and uh, no big deal. The music we listened to, right? Uh, some of it was more ungodly than other, others, but it was all brainwashing us to get us to think a certain way, to think carnally, to think worldly. Because as the God of this world, he wanted us to stay away from God and follow what he wants to do because he wanted to use us to destroy others, you know? And eventually he would destroy us. But we need to understand the devil was all about trying to control our mind. Spiritual warfare, for the most part, is a battle for control the way you think, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's why Paul said in numerous places, as soon as you get saved, make sure you start filling your mind with the Word of God because you don't want to be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed now by the renewing of your mind. And that happens as you feed your mind the Word of God. But Paul knew his enemy. He understood how Satan worked. He was not ignorant of Satan's devices or mind games. And Paul knew that Satan has a broadsword, which he uses on Christians pretty effectively, by the way. The two-edged sword of, listen, doubt and discouragement. Doubt and discouragement. He uses his broadsword to try to land devastating blows to our mind, our thinking, with regard to the genuineness of our salvation, Again, getting us to doubt that we're really a child of God. The helmet of salvation protects us from doubts about our salvation. Listen to me now. And I know I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating. If Satan can discourage you as a Christian, if he can discourage you as a Christian, by constantly pointing out your failures, your sins, your weaknesses, your bad habits, your poor health, your failing finances... If he can do that enough and you start listening to that, where you're focusing now not on God's word and his promises, but now on the circumstance, the situation you find yourself in, well, if he can do that enough and you listen enough, at one point he can begin to get you to doubt whether or not you're really saved. Because listen, if I was really a Christian, would I really have all these problems? Again, the guy I talked to this week, very close to me, and he was just a basket case. You know, I had to basically talk him down off the ledge. I mean, he just was convinced he was not going to heaven. He was not, you know, a true Christian because he just couldn't get his Christian life on track the way he felt he needed to. And, and I had to explain to him, first of all, it's good that you want to walk with God. It's good that you want to obey God. That should be something all Christians should do. But it doesn't, salvation is not dependent on what you do or don't do. If you love me, Jesus said what? Keep my commandments. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because we are now born of the Spirit and God has filled us with his love, Romans 5, verse 5. The fact that we love Jesus, the fact that we're here tonight because we want to know him in a deeper way, we want to study his word, all of that testifies to the reality that something is different inside of us. And now we want to go out and serve him and obey him out of that love. But that obedience, that service does not keep us saved. It's a fruit of our salvation. The fruit doesn't have to always be there for us to be saved. We're coming into fall now. We're in fall. 
course, this is one of the peak times of the year. Uh, it is the peak time of the year to go out and pick apples. I mean, maybe you've done that, going out to one of the apples. We did. I spent about 80 hours for a couple bags of apples, but it was a, it was a wonderful experience. A lot of memories to my granddaughter. Could have went to the jewel and spent 350 and got a couple bags of... But anyways. But you go out to an apple orchard right now. It's, trees are loaded with apples, right? Of course, even I, you know, can tell you, well, that's an apple tree. Well, why do you say that? Because there's apples on it, okay? Now, in, a, in about a month or so, all the apples will be gone, right? Is that still an apple tree if there's no apples on it? Sure. And in spring, we will see the fruit once again. Sometimes God works in our lives a time of pruning. Somebody has said, there are times when God is not working through us as much as he's working in us. Jesus likened it to the Father pruning, cutting away dead stuff and, and things that are sapping away the, the life of the Spirit. Sometimes God is working in us. And it's not pleasant. Again, sometimes we feel like we're miserable failures and so on and so forth. And what that'll do is either if the Holy Spirit is working, and He is, and you're listening to the Spirit, it'll make you want to run toward God. Let me just say this. Do you know how you can tell the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the devil? When you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, you want to run to God and get it right. When you're being condemned by the devil, you want to run away from God like Adam and Eve ran away and hid, right? The devil wants to condemn you. The Lord wants to convict you. He wants to draw you close to him so that he can work. The closer you are to the Lord, the stronger you're going to be. When I'm weak, then I'm really strong. I'm not trusting in my own strength, leaning on his strength. I'm really strong. Let me just say this. If you let the devil... Use your circumstances to discourage you. And, and look, none of us are where we want to be with the Lord, okay? I'm just so thankful I'm not where I once was. But I still, I realize I, I have a long way to go to be like Jesus, okay? And of course, the devil will use your shortcomings and your failings and a lot of other things to just condemn you. The idea is he wants to drive you from God. But if you let him use your circumstances to discourage you to the point of doubting your salvation, he's won. He's won. Again, warfare in the mind. If he can get you to be so discouraged about the way you're living, even though in your heart you want so badly to walk with God, but you're, you're messing up right now. You're weak. If he can get you to, to have enough discouragement about the way you're living, where then you begin to doubt whether or not you're really saved, he's won. He's won. He's one because, listen to me, you will never live like a victorious Christian if you don't really think you are a Christian, right? That's why I say, he can't take your salvation. He can't rob you of that. But if he can rob you of the assurance of your salvation, it's almost as good why he's lost you. But he can keep you away from anybody else. You, he can neutralize your effectiveness in reaching anyone else for the Lord. I mean, that's why Paul knew the helmet of the hope of salvation was so vital. He knew it because if you're going to be effective, victorious soldiers of Christ, which is what we're supposed to be, we need to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation every day. In fact, it was such an important thing that in the Greek, Paul put the word take, he put it in the imperative. The imperative in the Greek is a command, a command. He said, take up the helmet of salvation. That's an order. 
right? Paul was our general. He was, a, he was a general of the Christian army. And he's saying, I command you, I order you to put on the helmet of salvation every day because if you don't, you're going out into the, into the battle with nothing protecting your mind and your thinking and the devil is going to have you for lunch. You've got to know, you've got to be sure that once you gave your heart to Christ, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption and you will never perish, right? In fact, listen to me. The helmet of salvation is only going to protect us if we put it on every day. Basing our salvation, listen, it's very important, not on our feelings, not on our circumstances, and certainly not on our performance, which is what the devil wants us to do, to gauge uh, our Christianity by how we perform each day. What the Lord wants us to do is put on the helmet of salvation and keep focusing on the promises of God with regard to your salvation. Again, fill your mind with the Word of God, the promises of God. I'll give you two. There's dozens and dozens. But John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, listen, has, past tense, everlasting life, and shall not commit to judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's a promise. You give your heart to Christ, you have everlasting life. You're not working towards it. It's not a reward for holy living, and one day you stand before Jesus, he's going to say, oh, well, you know, you were that close. You just, you, you just missed it by a little bit. Sorry. No, you have it the moment you put your faith in Christ. You've passed from death to life. There's no going back. It's a one-way door. Again, John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that, listen, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life now guys as we come back to second peter peter is coming at this whole subject from a slightly different perspective but saying much the same thing as paul peter wants believers to have the assurance of salvation of their salvation of course okay peter wants that but only if a person's really saved, obviously, okay? I mean, he certainly doesn't want unbelievers to think they're saved and profess to be Christians when and to have assurance of salvation when they're not saved. And again, we just said earlier, there are unbelievers who have the assurance of salvation, but they're not saved. Because well-meaning Christians tell them things like, don't ever doubt your salvation. Now, you prayed that prayer, didn't you? You walked that aisle, I saw you. You filled out that little card. You're saved. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Don't let the devil ever put doubts in your mind about that. So now you got unbelievers walking around with the assurance of salvation and they're not saved. All because well-meaning Christians don't know their Bibles well enough or they're trying so bad to be salesmen for Jesus and close the deal. And it makes them feel good themselves to say, I helped that person get saved. I, I had a woman in the church years ago and... Um, her husband claimed to be a Christian, but this guy had no fruit in his life at all. One day I challenged her about his salvation. She said, oh, I know he's saved. Well, how do you know that? Oh, because 20 years ago, he went with me to a crusade and walked the aisle and prayed the prayer. I see. And that's, that's all you need, right? You know, Peter wants believers to have the assurance of their salvation. Of course he does. But he first wants to make sure they're saved. 
Okay? Yeah, he doesn't want people thinking they're saved and have assurance when, they, when they're not saved. Which is why he says to his readers, and his readers would be the people in the churches that would read this epistle eventually. That's why he says to his readers to be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. In other words, make sure you're not a phony Christian. You're not a counterfeit Christian, right? Make sure you're really a believer in Christ. And how can a person make sure they're really saved? He tells us in verses 5 to 7. He said, look, add to your faith a life of moral excellence, virtue. Add to that a knowledge of God's word. Add to that, eventually talk about self-control, etc. What's he talking about? He's talking about a transformed life. That's what he's talking about. You want to know if you're really a Christian? Has anything changed? Oh, but pastor, I don't... I, I'm not what I want to be yet for the Lord. Okay, great. Are you still living the way you used to live before you received Christ? Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I, I love to be in the Word. I love to come to church and be with God's people and so on and so forth. I, I love to, to, to honor the Lord now. I just blow it a lot. Okay, I understand that. But there's a change, right? This is what Peter is saying. And remember, we talked about how that what he, was, what he was basically saying was that the Lord will work the change in you, but you have to be willing. The spirit of life entered us the second we accepted Christ. The, the, the Holy Spirit's called the spirit of life. When we accepted Christ, God immediately filled our hearts, which means the life of God now filled our hearts, the spirit. And it's the most natural thing for the Holy Spirit to begin to grow within us and bear the fruit of Christ's uh, nature and so on. The only way we're not going to grow is if we don't want to put the effort in. I know some people who have been Christians for 20 years and they're still kind of they're still kind of young in their faith. I know people that have been Christians six months and I am amazed at how mature they are. Why? Because one person is really going for it and really studying the Word, and really taking seriously the admonitions to stay in the Word, and to be involved in the work of God, and to stay in fellowship with the saints. Where this other person, he's kind of coasting, he's on autopilot, like I said. And, and you know what, you, you're not going to grow, you, you can't live your Christian life by accident, you got to live it on purpose, okay? got to live it on purpose. Peter's telling us that, look, a changed life resulting in godly living is the truest test of the legitimacy of someone's salvation, and the result is assurance. Assurance. Of course, the opposite would also be true. If a Christian lives a life of carnality, there is going to be no assurance of salvation in their hearts, and, and nor should there be. I know somebody, again, very close to me, not the same person, but this person lives a very carnal Christian life. I believe he is saved. But he lives a very carnal life, and he's always terrified about not going to heaven. I don't know his heart. He might not be saved. I think he is. I see some fruit, a couple shriveled grapes here and there, but it's a little fruit here and there, you know. But he's always terrified that when he dies, he's not going to go to heaven. Well, that's a pretty easy thing to fix. Start walking with the Lord, you know. Start walking with the Lord. Peter said in verse 10, if you do these things, you will never stumble. He's saying, listen to me now, if we keep living godly lives of moral virtue as believers, we will never stumble, listen, into doubt, despair, or fear with regard to the genuineness of our salvation or our inheritance in heaven someday. 
but rather if we always do what Peter is commanding us to do. Stay close to the Lord. Let the Lord just begin to grow. His, you know, he's in us. You don't have to grow the fruit of the Spirit. It will happen naturally as you abide in Christ. Just abide in Him. And the Word of God abide in you as well. And these things will begin to grow naturally. Because that's the nature of God to bring life. And when He puts His life in us, He wants that life to be, you know, to work its way out into changed living and spiritual fruit and so on. Peter is saying, look, if you don't give all diligence to your walk and you're living a carnal life, you're not going to have any insurance, assurance. And Peter, is, if he was standing here, I'm sure he'd say, I don't know if you're really a Christian or not. I'm just telling you that, you know what, make sure you are a Christian by staying close to the Lord, stay in the Word, so on and so forth, and watch these things begin to happen. To your saving faith, you'll see a life of moral excellence begin to blossom. You'll see a hunger to know God's word in a deeper way. You will have self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit, to keep you away from bad habits that used to have you bound. And so on and so forth. These things will begin to grow. And you will live a life of confidence and joy here on the earth. Because you know you're right with God. You see the changes. You see the life of Christ in you, working its way outwardly. People see it. How many people came up to you after you got saved uh, you know, a few weeks and said, what, what, what happened to you? What, what's different about you? See, they're, they're picking up on that, weren't they? You, you, you weren't doing anything. You were just being a new creation. And they were picking up on that. And you know what? The greatest testimony to an unbeliever of the reality of Jesus Christ is you. A changed life. Paul said, you. I don't need letters of recommendation. In those days, it was important for, for teachers to get letters of recommendation from the places where they taught. That was real important back then. Paul said, I don't need letters of recommendation from anyone. You're my letters. You're my living epistles. Your life's changed lives bear testimony that the word I'm preaching is from God because only God can bring forth that kind of change. Only God can do that. You just go out and let your light shine. I'm telling you, people are going to run for the hills or they're going to run to you because they want what you got. And that's just what it's all about, right? If you live that way, well, you live a life of confidence and joy here on the earth while enjoying a productive, fruitful, spiritual life. Look at verse 8 again. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to be fruitful. You won't be fruitful if you're not drawing close to Jesus, learning all about him, and studying the word of God is primarily the way we do it. Verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, the only way for the devil to strike a Christian with devastating blows to their mind in the way they're thinking with regard to doubt is if they stay close to the world after they get saved rather than drawing closer to Jesus every day. Uh, you want an abundant entry into heaven, just stay close to Jesus because his life will be growing in you. He will direct you in the way you should be uh, serving him and what capacities. You will be an instrument in the hands of God. And, and as he uses you, rewards 
You're, you're laying up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? Look, the only way for the devil to strike a Christian, to neutralize a Christian's walk, is to mess with their mind. And the way that he really messes with Christians' minds is if that Christian stays too close to the world after they get saved. Instead of, some, some Christians, they may not verbalize it this way, but I know that's what they're thinking. How close to the world can I stay and still be saved? Okay? I mean, it's like they want to have the best of both worlds. They want to have God, but they also want to have the world. You can't do that. You can't do it. A sure formula for stumbling. Remember what Peter said, if you do these things, you'll never stumble? A sure formula for stumbling and falling in the Christian life is to just stay really close to the world after you get saved. It reminds me of the story of a little girl. Her mother tucked her into bed one night and gave her a kiss, and then the mom went off to her room. A few minutes later, the mother is in her room reading, and she hears big thud on the floor in her daughter's room. Comes running in, sees her little girl laying on the floor. Honey, what happened? I think I stayed a little too close to the place I got in, Mom. A lot of Christians like that. They fall because they stay a little too close to the place they got in. The goal of the Christian life is not to get saved and stay there so you can put, a, put your toe over into the world, you know, and, and enjoy the world and still be saved. It's you've got to keep now drawing closer and closer to Jesus away from the world. That's how you stay strong. I'll just read you one more quote, this one from Warren Worsby. He said, and I quote, The Christian who is sure of his election and calling will never stumble, but will prove by a consistent life that he is truly a child of God. He will not always be on the mountaintop, but he will always be climbing higher. If we do these things, the things that Peter listed in verses 5 to 7, if we display Christian growth and character in our daily lives, then we can be sure we are converted and will one day be in heaven. In fact, the growing Christian can look forward to an abundant entrance into heaven, into the eternal kingdom. The Greeks used, used this phrase to describe the welcome given to Olympic winners when they returned home. Every believer will arrive in heaven, but some will have more a more glorious welcome than others. Alas, some believers shall be saved yet so as by fire, quoting 1 Corinthians 3.15. What does that mean? Well, in that passage, Paul says there are some who are going to... It seems like when we get to heaven, imagine all the things you did for the Lord you're carrying in your, in your arms, okay? And as you approach the throne to lay them at Jesus' feet, because that's what the goal is, you have to pass through some kind of a fire, in fact, the Catholics use that passage to teach purgatory, but it's not, that's not what it's talking about. But you have to pass through this fire, which tries every work you did for the Lord. What does that mean? Well, what motivated it? Was it personal glory? Recognition? You wanted to be recognized as a very spiritual person, maybe then become an elder or something in the church, a pastor? Or did you do it purely out of love for Jesus? If your motives were selfish, those works will be burned up. If your motive was pure, they will be retained, and you'll receive rewards. Now, Paul says, look, hypothetically, if all your works are burned up as you're on your way to the throne, you're still saved. You're still saved because you're saved by grace. But is that really what you want, to have nothing to lay at his feet on that day? When it's all said and done, 
and our life on this earth is over, do we want to have things to lay at his feet, you know, things that we've done for him? And you know what? You don't have to be a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie or stand before thousands and thousands preaching the gospel to receive great rewards. It's required of a steward that they be found what? Faithful. Whatever God has given you to do, whether it's working in the Sunday school or being an usher, if you do it faithfully, you'll be rewarded as anyone. Years ago, I remember Dave Hawking, who has been out to the church a few times. He's a well-known speaker. He was a pastor at this time of a fairly large church. And one day it hit him as... He was giving an altar call and asking people to write their names down on the card in back of the seats of the pews so that we can call you and if you have any questions, you know, we, we want to get in contact with you. And it, it struck him. They need pencils to do this. And there's always sharpened pencils there, the back of the pew, for them to grab and to fill out the cards with. It's a little thing, but pretty important, right? He thought, who does that? He didn't know. So he said, one Saturday night, he slipped into the church quietly. And he peeked from around the corner into the sanctuary and saw some faithful saint, I don't even think he knew his name, gathering all the pencils to sharpen them to make sure that anyone who wanted to fill out a card could do that. Dave said, I wanted to cry. Here's a guy that's serving in anonymity. Nobody knows who he is. I don't even know who he is. I'm the pastor. But Jesus knows who he is. And Jesus is noticing his faithfulness. And the Lord will reward him for faithfulness. Not for the size of his ministry, but for the faithfulness of his ministry. You know, years ago I was reading a devotional. And the author said, you've all heard of Charles Spurgeon. Every Christian knows of Charles Spurgeon, right? Have you ever heard of his father? Now, his father was a pastor for 46 years. But you would never have known about John Spurgeon if it wasn't for his famous son, Charles. Then the author made this application. He said, John Spurgeon served faithfully for all those years, yet nobody really knew him. His point was, when we get to heaven, the Lord Jesus is not going to say to us, well done, thou good and famous servant. He's going to say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's all God is looking for us, for you to be faithful in whatever he has called you to do. Let me just read the next few verses, and we'll save them for next time. Verse 12, for this reason... I will not be neglect, negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, his physical body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And we will use that as a springboard 
next week to jump into the final section in chapter 1, which is one of the most important in the Bible, because it talks about the Bible, the Word of God. We'll look at that, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you take the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies to do your greatest work through. And you only require that we be faithful. The power is yours. The work is your spirits. We can do nothing in and of ourselves. But what you desire from us is the will to serve. And once we serve, to be faithful. Lord, give us the grace to do that. Whatever it is, there is nothing so small in your eyes. You said, Lord Jesus, if we give a cup of cold water to one of your disciples in your name, we will not lose our reward. Lord, give us grace to look around where the needs are. Give us grace to have servants' hearts and that we not serve for glory or personal recognition, but that we serve you, Lord, just that people would see you and be drawn to you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.